Good morning. As we're settling back in this morning from a rousing stretch break, isn't it awesome to worship together? I'm just thankful for the worship ministry here at Riverside and that we have the freedom to worship the Lord. Well, lots of changes going on at the church. You're going to see the foyer change significantly between now and Sunday as there'll be a lot of demo and kind of reconstruction. And, and uh, there's been some changes in my office a little bit. A couple years ago, I decided to take all of my books and organize them. And I decided to scan them into a, a free app that's a personal library management app called Libib. And it's kind of cool because I get to scan the barcode and it would pull in the title and the author and the publisher and an, a picture of the book and an overview of the book. That was great for the books that have barcodes. The one that didn't, you had to manually put in the ISBN number or worse yet, type it all in. But I put it all in there and it lets me search for a book by title or subject or author and it's wonderful now that it's finished. And one of the things I did, I assigned a category. I set up a bunch of categories and assigned them to every book. So some of my categories were things like apologetics, counseling, career, culture, evangelism, marriage, mission, prayer, and on and on. And I organized them all. Well, one of the categories I titled Christian Living. And any book that would answer the question, okay, I'm saved, now what? How do I live my life? Well, I kind of put that in Christian living, and it turned out to be the biggest category of books. And so they deal with things like knowing God's will, decision-making, time management, finding joy and purpose in life, living a victorious Christian life, and, and on and on. And so... As we get back into our study this morning in the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, our series is called Dear Church, and the subject is going to be addressing how Christians should live. And in particular, the area that we'll be covering is massively important, and yet it's seldom taught in a lot of churches, sadly. The topic is human sexuality, and the Bible has a lot to say about it. But since it's our, our normal practice to teach through books of the Bible, not always we'll do topical series, but in general we teach through books of the Bible at Riverside. I don't get to pick and choose my favorite topics. I don't, I don't get to do that, so when the Lord talks about it, we talk about it. And that's going to be the topic this morning. And I hope that you have come expecting to hear from the Lord. Because the very nature of a letter is that the Lord has something to say to us. This is a letter to the Thessalonians, but it's a letter to Riverside and every church and every believer as well. So I just hope that you're prepared to hear what the Lord has for us this morning. And so the message title is Christian Living. And we'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And the outline has three parts. God's word, which is an exhortation in verses 1 and 2. God's will, 
which is our sanctification in three through eight, and God's way representation in verses nine through 12. So up until this point in, in this letter, Paul has written the Thessalonians about their faithful response to the gospel and commended them for the way they persevered even though they faced tremendous persecution. He wrote them about how he longed to go visit them, but he wasn't allowed to because of persecution. And so he sent Timothy instead. And he wrote about the great report that he received back from Timothy when he returned. And now as he continues this letter, he's going to be addressing this topic in chapter 4. And so let's just start by reading through these, this text. It's only 12 verses. So we'll read it and then we'll work our way through it. I'm reading from the 1984 NIV translation. So it reads, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this manner no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we've already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is God's word. It's his letter to us, to me, to you. And Paul begins, we're going to look first at God's word, which is an exhortation to the church. And Paul begins with the words, finally, brothers. Now, by finally, it doesn't mean that it's like the end of the letter. It just means that he's coming to the last section. There's still two chapters and 45% of the letter to go. It's a little like some preachers who say, in closing... And then they go on for like 30 minutes. <laughs> kind of what Paul is going to do here. And verse 1 addresses brothers. I just want to point out that while that is an accurate translation, the word can and often does mean brothers and sisters. It was a very common use of that Greek word in the time. There's many sources outside the Bible that confirm that. So this is not speaking just to men. It's speaking to men and women, but it is those within the church primarily. It's like when we would say, hey guys, but we're not just talking about men. We can be talking about men and women. So that's what it says here. So Paul would write this last section, and it's nothing new to the Thessalonians. He'd already given them this instruction. He says this in both one, verses 1 and 2. He says, we instructed you how to live, past tense. 
And in verse 2, he says, for you know what instructions we gave you. He's already told him this at least once. And here he's telling him again. Now, what's interesting to me is that in the short time that Paul was with these new believers, it's just about three weeks he had. He shared the gospel. He led them to Christ. And he already began giving them this important instruction. He didn't waste any time. He covered a lot of ground in just three weeks. And the NIV translation uses this word instructions. It says, for you know what instructions you gave, we gave you. And it, it also is a, is a fair translation, but it's more commonly translated command or charge. Maybe that's what your translation says. And so the point is, these weren't just suggestions that Paul was giving to the church. They were commandments. And they're not just commandments that he made up or any of the other apostles made up. They were given, it says, by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So both the commandments and the commission to, gave, to give them came from the Lord himself. They were by the authority of God. So he establishes that right up front. And we should also note he's not rebuking the Thessalonians as he had to do a number of other churches like the Corinthians or the Galatians. Remember that? You foolish Galatians. He's not saying that here at all. He wrote, we instructed you how to live as in fact you are already living. So he's saying, we already told you this and you're already doing it. But now look what follows in verse 1. He writes, Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. It wasn't just a matter of whether they were doing it or not. It was a matter of the degree to which they were doing it. And the point is it should be ever increasing. Are we, are we doing this more than we did before? Than last year, than the year before? So what is this instruction, these commandments? What's he commanding them to do? It's right there in verse 1. He says, to live in order to please God. That's it. To live in order to please God. That's what Christian living is all about. Not living to please ourselves, but living to please God. And we should all be doing this more and more and more. That's the big idea. That's God's word. And it's an exhortation. It's a command to these believers and to us to live to please God more and more and more. So let's look at God's will, which is sanctification in verses 3 through 8. Verse 3 begins, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. And I'll just stop there for a minute. To be sanctified means to be set apart, to be consecrate, consecrated, to be made holy, to not be like everyone else. We're to be set apart for God's purpose. And as a result, we should be different than the world. We shouldn't think or act or talk in worldly ways. We shouldn't be conformed or pressed into the pattern of the world. But we should be different. We should be sanctified. And then sanctification is just a big Bible word for the process of changing from worldliness to godliness. 
It's all this, from worldliness to godliness or Christ-likeness. It's a process, and we're to be doing that more and more. And so verse 3 continues, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Notice what's top of the list, first thing out of his mouth, <laughs> avoid sexual immorality. He doesn't start off with selfishness or greed or lying or anger. No, right out of the gate, it's sexual immorality. A well-known pastor was having an evening meeting with a group of 40 men, and this is a true story. And he asked them what they felt were the three biggest temptations that men face today. And a man in the first row instantly called out, number one, sex. Number two, sex. And number three, sex. And they all busted out in laughter. But they knew it was true. And this is a true story. Surveys consistently show that sexual immorality tops the list of sins that men struggle with. But it's not just limited to men. And there's increasing evidence that women are just as tempted sexually as men. Whether in, a, in something in their mind or something physical. So it's no wonder then that sexual immorality is the first thing pointed out in verse 3. It was, it was prevalent back then. It's prevalent today. Now all too often I think Christians are known for everything that they're against. And not for what they're for. And so before we go into sexual immorality, let me start with the positive side of this. God created sex in all of the feelings of desire and pleasure that go along with it. That was God's doing. It was his idea. He created it. It's awesome. Amen. Amen. Not very enthusiastic. Like that. <laughs> I don't that. Amen. Praise the Lord. God does not say that we must avoid sexuality. He says that we must avoid sexual immorality. Ephesians 5.3 says it even stronger. It says, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Oh, can I get away with it? No, not even a hint. That's a really convicting verse. Now, since God created sex, he obviously has a purpose for it. And so I thought we should look at what is God's purpose for human sexuality. And I see four things in the Bible. First of all, the obvious one, to procreate. To be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. God desires to be in fellowship with mankind. And that begins with populating the earth. But it wasn't his only purpose. Number two, to bring pleasure. There's an entire book of the Bible devoted to romantic love and intimacy. It says that we are to be enraptured by our spouse's love. Literally, it means to be intoxicated, to be drunk with love. And it's talking about physical, sexual, erotic love within marriage. This is a gift from God. Number three, to produce intimacy. The Bible says a man will be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. And it's a beautiful picture of physical union. 
And it's as close as two people can get. And it's meant to produce not only physical intimacy, but emotional and intellectual and even spiritual intimacy, which creates this permanent and strong bond between two people. That's one of God's purposes, to create intimacy. And then fourthly, to be a picture of spiritual unity. A foreshadowing of the spiritual oneness that would exist between Christ and his church. You know the verse real well. He said, a man will leave his mother and father. And be but I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and his bride, the church. It's just a foretaste. Think how awesome the real thing will be when we're united with Christ. It'll far surpass any pleasure, excitement that we experience on earth. So these are God's purposes. And like everything God created, it should bring glory to him. And yet, sadly, many people worship and serve the created thing rather than the creator. Perhaps nowhere is this more true than in this area of sexuality. So sex and human sexuality were created by God for a specific purpose. And he gives us parameters to keep our practice in line with his purpose and to keep us from hurting ourselves and others. God's parameters for human sexuality are really simple. It's one man and one woman, woman who are joined together in marriage. Period. That's it. That's the parameter. And it's not to keep us from having fun. It's to ensure that we have the most fun without hurting ourselves or hurting other people. And so within this context, this parameter that God gives, he not only allows sex, but he encourages it and he even commands it. And he pours out his blessing upon it. This is beautiful in God's eyes and it's a gift from him. But anything outside of that parameter is sexual immorality and he forbids it. So verse 4 says that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Let's face it, sexual attraction is a powerful, powerful force. It's like a drug. It really is. It gets your heart racing. It can be addictive. It has many qualities of a powerful drug. And I have to wonder sometimes if maybe God didn't just make it a little too powerful. If maybe he should have just dialed it back a little bit. You know, just a little. But God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't. He says so in verse 4, he says, each of you. Who's that? It's not just married people, not just single people. Sexual immorality is a temptation for young and old, men and women, married and single. And it comes in many forms. Let's... We looked at God's purpose in sex. Let's look at what sexual immorality would include. First of all, fornication, which is sex by two people who are not married. For instance, but not exclusively, premarital sex. It includes adultery, which is sex by a married person with anyone other than his or her own spouse. That's outside God's parameter. Here's a tough one. It includes lust which has been called adultery of the heart by Jesus. 
It's willfully allowing one's thoughts or desires to be placed in wrong things for the sake of pleasure or gratification. It includes homosexuality, which is obviously sex by two people of the same gender, and by gender I mean biological sex. Bestiality, sex with an animal. And And there's others, but these are the main ones And many others kind of fall into one of these categories. They overlap a bit. But these are are the main ones. And again, this command applies to married people, single people, men and women, young and old. And so the command is that we should learn to control our body in a way that is holy and honorable. And just the fact that it says we have to learn this tells us we're not born or reborn with this. The day we receive Christ, we don't probably have this capacity. We have to learn it. Think about a newborn baby. He has almost no control over his body. Like the little arms and legs flail and they might go for their mouth and they just kind of hit themselves in the head. And my one-year-old grandson now is just learning to walk and it's the cutest thing, but my two-year-old, he just runs all around the house. He's got a lot better control, but he's got a lot more to learn yet. Well, in the same way, a believer in Christ must learn to control his passions and desires, moving away from ungodliness and moving toward Christ-likeness. And we're to learn to control our body, it says, in a way that is holy and admirable. Holy is just another word for sanctified, set apart, holy. Now, maybe a question you might have is, why? Why should I have to live in a way that is holy and admirable? Well, first and foremost, to please God. Look back at verse 1. It says, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. That should be our number one motivation. It's the reason for which he created us. And later, for which he redeemed us. For his pleasure, not our own. You might think, well, that doesn't sound like any fun. But here's the thing. The most satisfying, fulfilling, even pleasurable life comes when we live to please God and not ourselves. Even in this area of sexuality, do you believe that? Do you feel that? You just think, yeah, yeah, okay, I got to go along with that because that's what the Bible says. But is that really true? It's really true. And Jesus said, blessed are those who, blessed, oh, how happy, how elated are those who hunger and thirst, who strive after righteousness. Now, don't, don't take my word for it. There was a landmark study by researchers at the University of Chicago in 1994 And the title was interesting. It's called The Social Organization of Sexuality, Sexual Practices in the United States. And this was one of the most extensive studies at the time and to date. That's why they called it a landmark study. And it found this, that married monogamous Christian men and women are the most sexually fulfilled class of people in the country. Did you see that coming? That's what they found. They had, they, this had to just knock them backwards when they discovered this truth. 
they even went so far as to suggest the link between traditional values and sexual fulfillment. They said that their figures imply that, quote, an orthodox view of romance, courtship, and sexuality may well be the one way to satisfy, the one way to sexual satisfaction. How about that? Now, this is not a Christian university. <laughs> this is the University of Chicago. And this was their conclusion. USA Today picked up on it, and they wrote an article, and they titled it, Revenge of the Church Ladies. <laughs> well, isn't that special? <laughs> go church ladies. Go church men. I love what this study concluded. We're to live in order to please God. And when we do, it's the greatest pleasure for ourselves. Godliness, holiness is living to please God. Sinfulness is usually living to please ourselves. So we need to look inward and we need to ask, am I living to please God or to please myself, especially in this area of sexuality? So verse 5 continues. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. We're to be different. We're to be sanctified. We're to be holy. I really miss the wit and the wisdom of the late columnist Pauline Phillips. She went by the pen name Abigail Van Buren, Dear Abby. Two letters that she received, I think, kind of show the world's like take on sexuality. The first one comes from a man who wrote, Dear Abby, our son married in January. Five months later, his wife had a 10-pound baby girl. They said the baby was premature. <laughs> Tell me, can a baby that big be that early? Wondering. Every writes back, dear wondering, the baby was on time, the wedding was late. Forget it. Not good. In another letter, a man wrote, Dear Abby, I'm having an affair with two different women. I can't marry them both. Please tell me what to do, but don't give me any of that morality stuff. Abby's response was classic. Dear sir, the only thing that separates us from the animals is morality. Please write to a veterinarian. <laughs> he was acting more like a pig. <laughs> The contrast between God, between God's values and worldly values is tremendous. Today, there's a push not just to tolerate sexual sin, but to cultivate it. Beginning even in the early years of grade school, it's like grooming children for sexual sin. You know what God says about those who would lead a little one astray? It'd be better to give them the millstone necklace. A millstone tied around their neck and dropped in the depths of the sea. Our society, in many ways, is grooming children for sexual sin. But here's the thing. Widespread sexual immorality is nothing new. Not even of that magnitude. 2,000 years ago, 
First century Roman culture was awash with sexual immorality. They practiced and celebrated all kinds of sexual perversion, some worse than what we find today. It was even part of their religious system, their pagan worship, to require temple prostitution. If you wanted to be a good Roman citizen, you had to participate in this, or at least you couldn't take a stand against it. And so that was, at the time of the writing of this letter, that's what was prevalent. But go back another 2,000 years. Go all the way back to Abraham. Go back to Moses. And, and you'll find the same thing. Leviticus chapters 18 and 20 are a laundry list of the sexual sins of the Canaanites. And they included incest, adultery, homosexuality, child sacrifice, bestiality, and on and on and on and on. And God said in Leviticus 18.3, you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. And then he said in chapter 20 verse 7, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am the Lord your God. Isn't that exactly what he's saying here? 4,000 years later, don't do that. Be separate, be consecrated, be sanctified, because I am the Lord your God. God knows that we live in a super sexualized culture, just like they did. He acknowledges it, but that doesn't make it okay for you and me. He doesn't accept the excuse, but they all do it. He says in verse 5 that we're not to live in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Now, if you and I look just like the world, how's anyone going to be attracted to Christ? What do we have that they don't have? Think for a moment about the differences between a thermometer and a thermostat. A thermometer simply reflects its environment. Whatever the room is doing, that's what it does. It shows that. But a thermostat senses the environment, and rather than just reflecting it, it actually influences and controls the environment. God's called us to be a thermostat. He calls it salt and light, not a thermometer. He wants us to be an example to the world. He wants us to be a positive influence, a godly influence. He wants the world to know what it looks like to have the living God within us. So he calls us to be holy. Verse 6 says, And that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such, such sins as we have already told you and warned you. Make no mistake, sexual sin always hurts somebody. It always does. Ourselves, our spouse, our family, our church, our society, our business, our relationship with God, just to name a few. It always hurts somebody. It's not a victimless sin. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. It often hurts us. In the same study I already cited from our friends at the University of Chicago, the author said this, 
those who marry as non-virgins are also more likely, all other things being equal, to be unfaithful over the remainder of their life compared with those spouses who do not, who do marry as virgins. Isn't that amazing? See, what it's saying is once you develop a pattern of seeking fulfillment outside of marriage, it will be even more challenging to remain faithful in marriage. Hard times come. And you go for the exit. You go next door. You go across town. Now maybe you would say, but Paul, I've already fallen in this area of sexual purity. Either as a single person or as a married person. God knows that. And he's got a remedy for it. And we'll come back to that. Over ten years ago, I counseled a couple that was preparing for marriage. And the woman had previously been in an unmarried relationship with a man whom she lived with for a number of years. And the world sees nothing wrong with that, but God says it's sin, and he warns us of the harm that can come from it. And in our blindness, we don't see it. She didn't, but she later did. That relationship ended, and she was so wounded emotionally that several years later as she was preparing for marriage in a new relationship to a godly man a relationship that she believed God had brought to her and I do too as she was preparing for that she still suffered the scars of this past relationship she was struggling to trust her fiance her gift from God she was that deeply emotionally wounded it took time and work to come to a place where she was even ready for a godly marriage. Where I could, with a clear conscience, even marry them. Because there was, they, she wanted a prenuptial agreement. Like, just in case this doesn't work out. You know what? That's like, you know how in a wedding, we've had a couple weddings in the last two weeks. You know how in a wedding you have the unity candle, and you each take your flame up, the bride and the groom, and you light one candle? You're supposed to blow it out. See, a prenup would be like taking your candle back to your seat with you just in case the big one goes out. I wanted a way of escape. It's, it's building a marriage on a crack foundation. It's not trusting God and the leadership of the church to work through any kind of a conflict that you might come across. She was wounded and she couldn't come to a place of trusting her husband. Now, Men can be deeply wounded in a similar way. Now, this woman boldly, courageously stood before this church about nine years ago and gave a testimony. And she pleaded with people not to follow her mistake. It was a very powerful testimony as God changed her heart and showed her. And she became sanctified. She saw what she had done. She changed her mind. She repented she began to learn to trust again. So, we already saw one reason why we should live in a way that's holy and honorable, and that was God's pleasure. We're to do it to please God. There's a second reason in the second half of verse 6, and that is God's punishment. It says right there, the Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. Now, he's not writing this to the culture he's writing this to the church 
Back in our study of 1 Peter, we talked about something called a moral hazard. Do you remember what that was? A moral hazard. A moral hazard is described as a situation where there's a lack of incentive to guard against risk when one is protected from its consequences. And so here's a couple examples. It's like having a safety net. You could say it that way. And it can lead to more risky behavior. So for instance, someone picks up a rental car and takes out full insurance coverage. They're probably going to be less careful with the way they drive the car because they know that if anything happens to it, they won't be financially responsible. It's created a moral hazard. Or in the business world, if a company believes they're just too big to fail and the government will bail them out, it can easily lead them to make risky, foolish decisions as a business. Even in the world of aviation, we now have airplanes that have a ballistic recovery system. Literally a golden parachute, a parachute that can be deployed at almost any time in an emergency and it can lower the plane safely to the ground. And although it's been shown to save lives, the jury's still out because it also seems to embolden pilots to take risks that they otherwise wouldn't. Because they know that if they get into trouble, they can just pop the chute and I'm out of it. A moral hazard. So does the fact that God is gracious and forgiving create a moral hazard in Christianity? Does it create contempt for his standard of righteousness? It shouldn't. Not if we understand the Bible properly. And this is in part where God's punishment comes in. Hebrews 12, 6 says quite clearly, the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as sons. Sometimes this punishment comes in a form of natural consequences. We do stupid things, bad things happen just naturally, but other times it's a direct judgment from God. Well, wait a minute, doesn't God forgive me? Yeah, yeah. If you repent sincerely, he will forgive you. But there's a difference between forgiveness and consequences. Let me give you a couple examples. God forgave King David, but he didn't remove all of the worldly consequences, or actually his divine judgment, for the sexual sin David committed. It cost him the life of his son. Another example, the thief on the cross. He repented. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He saved him. He forgave him. But he didn't take him down off the cross and say, there, go on your way. He still had to pay the earthly consequence for his crime. So there's a difference between forgiveness and consequence. God can forgive us, and yet we can still suffer consequences for our decisions. The lady going into marriage, her lack of trust was a a consequence of her earlier relationship. So Paul wrote to the Romans in in Romans chapter 6. He said, so shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And then verse 7 in our text says, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. He did not call us to be impure. I'm afraid that the church in America is losing 
It's zeal for holiness. And so we've surrendered the battle. Choosing to believe that holiness just isn't possible. And so instead we take the easier route of sinfulness and forgiveness. It's summed up by the attitude, I love sinning and God loves forgiving me. What a team. That shouldn't be our attitude. God didn't call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Verse 1 in our text says that we're to live our lives in order to please God, and we're to do this more and more. Is that our heart? I mean, really, is that our heart? Is that your heart? Is that my heart? To please God more and more? To be more and more holy? To be more and more sanctified sexually? Or in our brokenness, do we try to do just enough to get by? How holy do I have to be and still be okay? Can I do this? Can I get away with that? That's often our sinful attitude, isn't it? Romans 8.8 8 says those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. We're to live our lives in a way to please God. And it says those controlled by the sinful nature can't please God. So a question is this. How hard are we really trying? Are we fighting tooth and nail for holiness in our own lives? Now don't worry about society. This letter isn't written to them. It's written to us here in the church. So are you fighting tooth and nail for holiness in your own life? Or have you succumbed to the notion, to the lie, that it's just not possible? Listen to these convicting words in Hebrews 12.4. It says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. How hard are we trying, church? This verse would say, we're probably not trying all that hard. We're too easily giving in and going the route of willingness and sinfulness and forgiveness. That's our path. I kind of want to do it, so I do, and then I go to God for forgiveness. Maybe there's a change that we need to make today in this area of our lives. Now listen to verse 8. It says, therefore, he who rejects this instruction, this command to live a holy life, to please God, to avoid sexual immorality, who, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now when we place our faith in Christ, God immediately gives us eternal life. He forgives us our sins and he gives us the Holy Spirit. But he does not automatically, immediately make us holy. We're forgiven, but we don't become instantly sinless. In fact, we don't ever become sinless in this life. Yeah, we're living in the modern day equivalent of Canaan and Corinth. But God has given us something that they didn't have. And it says so right there in verse 8. He's given us his indwelling spirit. And with that comes the power to overcome sin and to live a holy life. Not perfectly, but increasingly. More and more and more. He gives us that power. 
by his Holy Spirit. So if we reject the call to live holy lives, if we assume it's just not possible, or worse, it's not even necessary, then we're rejecting God, who gives us his Holy Spirit and calls us to live a holy life more and more. Now, I, I don't come to you as one who's faultless in this area. I'm not. And no pastor is. No pastor is. But I will say that it is possible to earnestly pursue holiness and experience a great deal of success in that. And ever-increasing ever progress in holiness, even in this area of sexuality. And we're called to do this more and more. Are you ready to try harder? Do you need to try harder? If you are, a book that I'm finding to be really helpful is titled Personal Holiness in Times of Temptation, and it's by Bruce Wilkinson. And in it, Wilkinson lays out a very practical plan for personal holiness. I love how he approaches the subject. It's a workbook of sorts. Joe Stoll said, read this and your life will never be the same. So how hard are we trying? This, getting a hold of this book would be a simple step in the pursuit of greater holiness. Personal holiness in times of temptation. So God's will is sanctification. His will is that we live a holy life. Let's look finally at God's way. Representation. God wants us to represent his character in the world. Now, I'm going to go really quickly through these final verses because I think that the bulk of what I believe is for us today is in those first eight verses. But verse 9 says, Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. How interesting that God himself taught these new believers the importance of loving each other. Isn't that cool? Paul says, I don't have to teach you. God taught you. He did it by example. See, the very nature of the gospel is that it's a message of love. And when we receive the gospel, we experience the full measure of God's love poured into our lives. It teaches so much about what love is, what it looks like, and more importantly, what love does. It's self-sacrificing. And Jesus said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And notice they were already doing this too. And they were doing it in an exemplary way. We saw in chapter 1, like all over Macedonia, the whole region, everybody heard about their faith and their love for one another. They were exemplary. Yet Paul urges them to do so more and more. Again, it's not just a matter of whether or not you're loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, whether or not you're loving a brother or sister in Christ. It's the degree to which we're doing it. It should be ever-increasing. Our love this year should be more than our love last year for one another in demonstrable ways, ever-increasing. So, he says in verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders 
and that so you will not be dependent on anybody. This is how we're best to best represent God and to influence the world around us. Now, I think it sounds kind of counterintuitive. It certainly sounds counter to a lot of what we see. Leading a quiet life, minding our own business, working with our hands, having a job. This isn't a passive life, though. It's an ambitious life. It says so right there. Make it your ambition. In other words, like actively strive for this. But the focus of this ambition should be more on ourselves than on others. It should be more on what we're doing than what those pagans out there are doing. It's so easy to put all of our ambition on what they're doing and not ourselves. This says we won't win the respect of others by a condemning confrontational activism. We're not going to win the respect of others by standing on the corner and with the bullhorn and telling them how condemned they are. It's just not going to happen. I don't know how that advanced. That was a mystery. Um, <laughs> it says we'll win their respect with a quiet life, a life of love, faithfulness, and holiness. Now, this doesn't mean we shouldn't engage the culture, but what it does mean is that we should temper our approach. We may need to tone it down a little bit. Not getting up in their face and telling them everything they're doing wrong. We should be showing them what it looks like to have the God of all creation living within us, transforming us ever increasingly day after day. Let that be a big part of our witness. And so our lives are to represent the character of God and God is holy. He said, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So let's just, let's just wrap this up by recapping a few of the important points in here. This is God's letter to us. And we are called to live a holy life and to do so more and more. This isn't a suggestion, not a recommendation. It's a command. And it's a command from the Lord Jesus himself. God doesn't say to avoid sexuality. Whew. He said to avoid sexual immorality. And there's a big difference. God's parameter for sexuality is really simple. One man and one woman who are joined together in marriage. Anything outside of that is immorality. And again, God doesn't do it to keep us from having fun. He does it because he wants us to have the most fun without hurting ourselves or someone else. And the study showed, you want to have the most fun? Follow God's plan for sexuality. We need to consider, am I living to please God or to please myself, especially in this area of sexuality? Remember, the most satisfying, fulfilling, even pleasurable life comes when we live to please God. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So who am I living to please? Where do I need to make changes? And along with that, how hard am I trying in this area of personal holiness? Is it time to try harder? Because the fact is we can overcome the sin that has mastered us if we truly desire to do so. 
God has given us the resources. We have the power at our disposal. I'm not saying we can be perfect, but we can stop being slaves to that pet sin. He's given us the power, but he won't do it without us. We have to surrender to his will, to his spirit, calling upon his power, and then he'll do it. He'll give us that power to overcome that sin. So how hard are we trying? Get a hold of Wilkinson's book, Personal Holiness in Times of Temptation. There's a difference between forgiveness and consequences. Yes, the Lord forgives us, but he doesn't always remove all of the consequences, whether natural or divine. He disciplines those he loves, and he punishes he punishes everyone who he accepts as a son. It's for our good. The Spirit gives us the power to overcome sin and to live a holy life. Again, not perfectly, but ever increasingly. And we should see this happening in our own lives more and more as we look back about the past year, the past five years. We should see progress in this area. And finally, our lives are to re represent the character of God. And God is holy. We're not to conform to the pattern of this world. We're to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be holy. So as you're considering these things, maybe you'd say, yeah, I have fallen in this area of sexual purity even this morning, this week, this year. When then we need to confess that to the Lord. It's the Lord we've offended. We need to also confess it to others who we have offended. And, and you know what? God stands with open arms ready to forgive. He came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world through Christ. He came to cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness. He, he can remove that sin he, as far as the east is from the west. David, at the end of his whole episode, said, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. So he's a God of new beginnings. It doesn't mean that there won't be consequences, but there will be forgiveness and a new path toward holiness. Praise God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Jesus said this as he was praying for his church, for his disciples. He said, your word is truth. Sanctify them by your truth. And that's our prayer, God. Sanctify us by your word, by your truth. Use it to pierce our hearts and to convict us of our unrighteousness. God, forgive us for the sexual immorality in our lives. Forgive us for the times when we look probably more like the world than like Christ. For the times when we stop trying or even wanting to be holy. Wanting instead to enjoy the pleasures of sin. God, forgive us. And give us a new start. Give us your power to overcome the sin that has mastered us. Help us to live holy lives before you and before a watching world, God. That they might see you in us. God, we want to do this to please you and for your kingdom and for your glory. And so we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.